Welcome, everybody, to this episode of Dadbot History. Uh, I'm Jake. We got Cameron and Eric on tonight. How you doing, guys? Excellent. Excellent. Good I got man. a uh, follow-up with my daughter on the, um, you know, Tales from the Dad front side of things. Yeah. Um, so my latest installment of uh, battles with my four-year-old, now four-year-old, just turned four the other day. Um, and, and this is not as, as much of a knockdown drag out as last time. So um, it was morning time and I asked her to uh, just put away her breakfast plate. I had the audacity to ask her to put away her breakfast plate. And, you know, at that age, it's really just sticking in the sink, no big deal. So she hits me with, Daddy, I'm too tired to put my plate away. So I said, okay, yeah, yeah that's, that's fine. Um, but, but you're going to put it away proceeds to wail and cry and, you know, gnashing of teeth. So I take her out in the garage with the light on. I'm not, you know, trying to scare her, but I put her out in the garage and I said, okay, well, here's a chair. You can just kind of rest up. And then when you're ready, you can put your plate away. <laughs> rest up. <laughs> so she got about 10 seconds of rest. And all of a sudden she miraculously was, was ready to go and, and put her plate away. So wasn't nearly as, as bad as the uh, water story, but uh, you know, I, I was pretty, pretty proud of myself on that one. That's since that's something else. I like <laughs> pressed up yeah, the restorative properties of the garage are miraculous. Everyone knows. I, I don't this. know what it is, but it worked in 10 seconds. So next that's time good. I'm tuckered out, I, I need to mosey on out to the garage. Okay. Um, Eric. On our text strand, you sent some lovely photos from last night. Mm. Uh, you look dapper, if I dare say so myself. What was that? Feel uh, what was that like for? That, uh, yeah, it was our school. It was, you know, we didn't have an auction this year. So we did uh, an event that was similar, very similar, but a different format. So, you know, the theme was uh, re recoloring the 20s. It was all like, you know, 1920s theme. So, mm -hmm. uh I ordered a, a vest and and got myself a flat cap. And, uh, my wife got herself a, like a flapper dress and all that kind of <clears throat> get up. And one of the, uh, I guess, elements of this is our, some of our staff made their signature drinks. And then oh. parents paid for like a drink ticket and then they could buy one of our drinks. And uh, I, I use my dad's... Uh, margarita recipe to great aplomb i think uh -huh. <laughs> did i use that right pretty i, I used think so. it right yeah, you did. Just, you're good uh and you know what i sold it well too like people come up and be like what is this i said well this is the lone coyote margarita like out of the uh, our most recent state the 48th state of arizona uh, because of the 1920s, it would be the most recent state. Oh, uh, got, got it. Topical. So, you know, this has been developed in the sun uh, for a few years. And so this is uh, the signature drink. And, uh, I, you know, I tell people, you know, uh, there's a surprise at the end, especially if you drink it fast. You're just going to feel better. 
It's uh-huh. going to make you feel better. So it was good. It was fun. I looked great. My wife looked great. Good you know, times. I'll be honest. I didn't even see your wife in the photo. I was just so dazzled by you. Well, so, yeah, that happens. So, you know, just I'm I'm just being honest. And I was surprised you had to order the vest and a flat hatter. I would have thought you already had that in your closet. But. I had a flat cap and I don't know where it went. And I don't have a vest. And of course, now you do. Yeah, now I do. Yesterday morning, I had to go buy a suit too. So, um, because I don't have a suit, I have a sport coat. Mm-hmm. So, I did well, that I mean, yesterday. The next 1920s theme party that you're going to be invited to in the next few months, I'm, I'm sure you'll be ready. You know, you'll have it chambered and ready to go. Yeah. 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 So, I just need the thing. I don't mind these theme things. I guess they, okay. To be totally honest, they do bug me because it's like, okay, I, I get all gussied up for this thing. And then the next thing, the next theme is something completely different and off the wall. Uh, the last time I had any reason to wear something similar was literally 11 years ago. And I didn't have the vest. So all I had was the cap. I don't know where the cap went. Um, I look stunning in those photos as well. <laughs> But yeah, I feel like I feel like your complaint is the complaint of every woman in America. I don't think what you're saying, well, I have to get gussied up and then I never wear it again. Like every woman ever has had to deal with that all the time. Like a bridesmaid dress. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I know they get so frustrated with having to buy new clothes. But anyways. Anyway, I mean, you looked great. I'm. That's all that matters at the end of the day. Your comment on Facebook said it best, Eric, you know, the the wisdom in your eyes, as good as you looked, it was that extra 11 years worth of wisdom in your eyes. It just really put it over the top. Yeah. Yeah. Did, and did I send that other picture that want, they did wanted photos of all the staff. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they said, AKA the new Bonnie and Clyde. It was, it was my wife and I with our mug shots. I didn't know what that, the, one of the, the organizers came around the other day to the classrooms taking pictures. She said, I need you to take a picture without smiling. And I didn't understand what it was for. So I couldn't get through the, it took me like three minutes to get this shot without me giggling like a schoolgirl. <laughs> yeah. Like I was just like, I can't, I don't, what am I not smiling for? Uh, but it was funny because it says, uh, you know, my nickname was Trigger Finger, a guilty of racketeering. My wife, who's also a language arts teacher, uh, was called the assassin, and her her crime, guilty of plagiarism. That's a deep cut to her. <laughs> That's a really that one hurts, I bet. Yeah. Did, did you know what you were accused of? She says, what? I said, plagiarism. She was like, oh, no. I'm not going that I mean, that. yours is kind of believable. Because of how you ran the athletic department at our old school, but <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm just saying <laughs> athletic director Hoffman. Yeah. Just quote unquote. <laughs> hey, Hey, you pay those team fees. You pay them now. <laughs> okay, Mr. Hoffman. <laughs> I, that's no different than what utility companies do. This is a Awfully nice basketball you got here. Be ashamed if something happened. The fact to that it, I it? also had a monopoly on the athletics at school. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm no different than a power game. company. That's your own fault. That's your own fault. Yes. You had a monopoly of power on that. Uh huh. So today, 
me and my wife, we took our kids to the park. We're walking in the park and um, having a wonderful time. And as we're walking down this path, it's flowing along this river. And this three-year-old oh. comes cruising down the bike path on one of those little strider bikes, you know, with the no pedals on yeah. him. And he's booking. He's got his helmet on. He he's He's all geared up. Not a parent to be seen. I don't know where this kid came from. I don't know if he lives in the park. That's not my that's not my issue. That's not my story. Probably had AirPods in his ears too, huh? Oh yeah. Yeah. He was yeah. probably listening to like Jack Johnson. I don't know. But so anyway, oh yeah. He hit and well you say this and he's cruising by. He he flies by my wife and my son, comes swinging up by me, and I said, Hey, and he just like gives me the stink eye. Like, all right, dude whatever your deal is. And then uh, he sees my daughter and like my daughter's like playing on like a tree stump and he goes, stops, double takes and looks at her. And I'm like, somebody better grab this kid because it's about to go down. I don't want to get in a fight with a three-year-old, but I will give me the stink eye and start eyeing up my daughter. Not today, sir. Not today. So... Your daughter's out of his league anyway. She is. I don't know what a three-year-old thinks he's going to do. I end up a seven-year-old. Not in my world. No. (laughs) And and then he just, he looks at her, tries to talk to her, gets a little uncomfortable because he's three and he doesn't know how to talk yet. And then he strides away on his bicycle. Don't know where he went. I don't know what's up with this kid and his life in this park, but. Did you ever come across the parents or? I think maybe because then I saw a couple frantically running like 10 minutes later. I'm like, I've been okay. chasing that kid. 10 minutes so, later. So, yeah, free range. I don't know what's going on here. Was this the 1960s? I don't think I teleported back in time to the 60s. Maybe I did. Hey. Don't feel like it, but. There's accounts of that happening. Yeah. I'm... Okay. Okay, let's get to it. Well, right. anyway. I, yeah. yeah. Reality is, a kid better watch it, not be eyeing up my daughter. That's the reality of the story. The reality is that Dad Bod History is brought to you by by Transworld. Yes. I'll take it from here. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Dad Bod History is brought to you by Transworld Business Advisors. If you own your own business, then you know the challenges of dealing with employees, customers, social media, government regulations, and the rest of it. With the pandemic coming to an end, there are hundreds of buyers coming to the marketplace looking for existing businesses to buy. And if you are ready to cash out, you need to call Transworld Business Advisors today. They have a database loaded with interested buyers and have over 40 years of experience in the industry. They will guide you through setting a price for your business. They have a database with sales data from tens of thousands of sold businesses, and they know how the market price for your listing. Transworld Business Advisors will find qualified buyers with their extensive reach and market-leading advertising. Transworld will ensure that the closing process goes as it should. And when you leave the closing table, you'll get paid and will be free of liability and responsibility. Responsibility. If you are... Just making the echo there. No, that was good. That was good. Uh, Things out. Our, our our digital effects department is top notch here. Um, 
If you are a buyer, Transworld can help you as well, from evaluating a business to helping with funding. They are there for you all the way to your first day as the owner of your own business. Call today and set up a discreet and confidential, not like the Amazon accounts that we talked about, consultation with a local representative. You can reach Jeff Peterson at 903-422-6818, or you can go to www.twworld.com. Again, that's www.twworld.com. T-World, T-World, T-World. Okay, I, it was good. It was good that time. Uh, Cameron, I have a question. You read that number, 6818. I think that's inconsistent. It should be because you read it as a two-digit number, and then you read it as two single-digit numbers. You know, fun fact: I used to be really good with memorizing numbers, phone numbers, that kind of thing. And I don't know if it's a mnemonic device. I don't know if it's a. I've always kind of done that. So if you take a number seventy-four eight zero, or you take a, I've I've always done that with uh, phone numbers. Sticks in my head that way. Well, and to be fair, it stuck with Eric. Mm, well, right? just that he did it weird. Like, well, I see the sticks. number in front of me, but I would have said 6818 or 6818. You know, you know, I had a conversation about this very thing the other day, and I don't know if it's a, you know, bygone era thing, but I am a sucker for a good jingle in advertising. So I don't know if Transworld has a jingle or something like that. Maybe we should make one up. But anyway, um, locally. Trans World I, Business Advisors. Something like that. <laughs> Buy it, exactly. sell it, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, Jeff. Your fee is going to go up for this because this yeah, is yeah. just top yeah. notch Yeah, stuff. this is absolute gold. Off the dome yeah, melodies. It's one thing to advertise. Yeah. It's one thing for us to take on and be your marketing department. But, but you guys know the Learner and Row song being... Former learner and blow is <laughs> learner and what? What was that? <laughs> what was that? <laughs> learner and row. I give just us, everything becomes BL. Blager. Uh -huh. So learner and blow. Oh, uh, learner and blow. Yeah. <laughs> oh, this episode is going to require so much editing. Oh man, you are. Yeah. <laughs> Moving on, let's get into the history because All right. we've messed up the intro stuff, so we're, we're good to go. <laughs> Solid 15, 20 minutes here, guys. That was good. Well done. All right. <laughs> I feel bad for you, Eric. All right. Um, what I do? So, well, just all the editing you're going to have to do, chopping up. Uh, our... It's like an extra 30 seconds to find that. Cut, cut. That's fine. All right. So... Recap, uh, Russo-Japanese War. Uh, last episode, we finished talking about the initial battles, um, the Yalu River on land, and uh, the siege of Port Arthur. And then we also talked about the Battle of the Yellow Sea. And I'd like to talk about that a little bit more before we get into where we're going next. Um, because I don't think, at least in my part, I don't think we sold the Battle of the Yellow Sea um, and how close it was. And that's something I, I would like to revisit a little bit. Uh, specifically, when uh, Admiral Vitgeft, he's ordered by 
Tsar Nicholas to, to break out of the blockade at Port, Port Arthur and make for Vladivostok. And Vitgeft doesn't want to, but he finally does in August. And in his breakout, it says, you know, the Japanese cross their T and they start shelling on each other and shooting each other with the big guns. And, and they it's, fight. Initially, it's from extreme range. That's a word yeah. I keep reading, extreme range, which is said eight kilometers, mm-hmm. um, which is basically the the furthest distance those guns can fire. And those are just the big guns, the big ones on the turrets right. with the hydraulic. And, yeah, not and the just because guns. they can fire that distance doesn't mean that um, their their rangefinders, their sighting instruments, actually have the ability to sight them in at that distance. Yeah. So they're firing at each other, not a lot of hits. Um, but as the battle wears on, for about three hours, they're just eventually they start getting some scores on each other and they they land and then they start hitting each other and they just they beat the snot out of each other's fleets. And I, I think when we talked about it last week, we didn't emphasize enough that it was really close going for the Japanese. Cause I think up until this point, a lot of these battles, especially on land, the Japanese have been so good, so well prepared, so organized that they within a you know a day they've acquired their objective. And this one, the Battle of the Yellow Sea, while it only lasts the one day, it's a slog for that entirety. And the Japanese start taking some serious damage on their battleships, their cruisers, destroyers, everything. And this is going to matter later on in the war. So they fight from about 1230 to 330. And then they break off in fighting and the Japanese just begin pursuing. Their ships are faster. They know that the Russians are making for Vladivostok. And so they're just chasing them to catch them up. Then they catch up again to them at about 5.30, start firing. Vitgeft is finally killed. And, um, and then that's when the Russian line disintegrates. But something that I read that was interesting was during this fighting, especially towards the end of the battle, is the Japanese guns, um, especially their big guns, they were using uh, this powder that they made, their own gunpowder called Shimose um, gunpowder. And it was more explosive and it was a better quality powder than pretty much anywhere else in the world. Um, The problem was the Japanese guns were getting so big, uh, so hot that as they were loading the shells into the breaches, the barrels of the guns were so hot, it was igniting the powder and the shells were exploding before they could even be fired. And so the. And, and so the Japanese were not in good shape here. And I think that's something that we didn't, we just didn't touch on. I don't think well enough. And it's like the Russians were giving as good as they could get during this battle until Vitgef dies and the whole line disintegrates. Um, when I think the Sarovich turns hard to the port. Um, but up until that point, the Japanese are struggling. And like, if the battle goes on another couple hours, there's a good chance the Russians can can pull away and if not destroy the Japanese fleet, at least most of the mm-hmm. Russians could get to um, Vladivostok, which again, just one of these things where the war is hinging on just these small moments or these small things. Um, and, and so what happens if they get to Vladivostok? They're able to link up with the other fleet, the Vladivostok fleet, and now yep. they can put out to open ocean, open sea, exactly. their full Pacific fleet to or at least most that of can it. wipe out the Japanese fleet in a single stroke. 
but theoretically, yeah. Because you know, every each one of these battles, uh, each one of these naval battles, the Japanese are sending pretty much everything they have against mm-hmm. a specific part of the Russian fleet, and yeah. so it's like. Japanese cannot take on the whole thing at once. So they're going piecemeal. Let's get the Port Arthur fleet taken out. But then we'll go do with the Vladivostok fleet. And all the Russians yeah. have to do is bring both fleets to bear at one time. And the Japanese are going to be outnumbered and outgunned. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and there's still a fleet coming from St. Petersburg. Yep. So the Japanese, if they could just take it one at a time, they're going to be fine. Yep. So I just wanted to give attention to that um after the battle of the yellow sea after vitgev dies the the pacific fleet is largely ineffective they don't have a chance the vladivostok squadron is actually set to meet vitgev on his way to vladivostok but um because they never completed their breakthrough the vladivostok squadron was isolated so they were um i think all but one of their ships was eventually destroyed or incapacitated. Um, So now Russia has no naval presence in the Pacific while they're waiting for a relief fleet to come around. Um, And that all happened in August of 1904. Now that the the Russian fleet has been effectively neutralized, he, um, uh, Kodoma is able to push the assault onto Port Arthur via land. And uh, General Nogi is in charge of taking the forces and attacking the 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 defenses at Port Arthur. Um, he begins doing that. He's able to shell um, his guns, those big Krupp howitzers. They're eleven-inch howitzers. And here's something about that: those howitzers are shooting five hundred-pound shells. Yeah. So. <laughs> When, when when it was Napoleon, right, the Napoleonic Wars almost a century earlier, the shells were what, 12-pound howitzers, right? 12-pounders, 10-pounders. Yeah. And so now a century later, they're shooting 500-pound exploding shells um, into Port Arthur. General Nogi tries to do a general assault, um, but the defenses are just too good. And um, it led to up to 16,000 Japanese casualties, and they didn't get anywhere with it. So that's kind of where we are. That's where we ended up after the Battle of the Yellow Sea. And that brings us to now in the war. And so what I want to go over, I guess, first is some of the final land battles of the war. And then we can get into um, the Pacific Fleet, the second Pacific Squadron, and the Battle of Tsushima later. So with the with the um, the land battles, then the next one I want to talk to is the Battle of Liaoyang. Took place from August twenty sixth to September four. So the Japanese now have Port Arthur completely cut off, but uh, General Kuropatkin from Russia is still got a base in Manchuria that he's reinforcing with, with soldiers from, from St. Petersburg. And he's able to build up his forces enough where he can start pushing back down south and reconnecting to Port Arthur. That's, that's the goal here. Um, August 26th to September 4th, the Battle of Liaoyang takes place. Uh, the Russians outnumber the Japanese in men and guns, but let me see here. 
I think they had. Yeah. Under, so uh, 250,000 men, roughly. And they had 600 guns to Jap Japan's 170. But here's another quote from Jukes, um, who wrote uh, Russo-Japanese War. Because he was so badly served by intelligence that he believed himself outnumbered. Which, who is the general in the Civil War that had the same problem? McClellan. Yeah. Uh, McClellan was that one. Um, so he had numbers, he had the guns, but his intelligence was so bad, he thought he was outnumbered. And so he's very conservative. Even though he had the forces, he's very conservative with those forces. Um, and the Japanese, their intelligence was so good, they knew exactly how many Russians there were. They knew exactly how many Russian guns there were. And so Kuropatkin is being very conservative with his forces, but Japan knows we're outnumbered here and we need to make a strike before the before more Russians come in. And that's kind of how the Battle of Liaoyang starts. Um, but much like at many of the earlier battles we've seen with the Russians and Japan, uh, even though the Russians had the numbers, even though they had some advantages, their communications, their intelligence was so bad um, that it, it was it was ineffectual. Um, the battle commenced August 26th. Uh, Oyama from Japan uh, devised on a frontal assault with his second army while the first army advanced to the Northeast to cut off Russian communication. Uh, by August 27th, the Russians had abandoned their outer defenses. So again, within a day, they were giving up key positions. Uh, they were using their cavalry to guard their flanks as they retreated, uh, the Russians were. And um, there is one bright spot though, and it's the Russian First Siberian Corps. Uh, the Japanese ar second army stalled. That was the one that was making um, the frontal assault when they ran into the first Siberian Corps, holding the second army all day and was exhausted, but Kuropotkin would not commit his reserves in the false belief he was outnumbered. So the second army, or sorry, the first Siberian Corps is holding the line. They're stopping the advance, but Kuropotkin, because his intelligence is so bad and he's being conservative, won't reinforce them and so eventually, much like previously with, um, was it Manchin, Manchon Hill, yeah. where they were holding, but because they weren't getting the reserves they needed, they had to abandon the post. And the Siberian, the first Siberian Corps had to abandon their post. Um, and eventually by September 4th, so it was just a steady retreat, retreat, retreat. By September 4th, Kuropotkin, um, ordered a general retreat. And Japan did not give chase, even though they could have, uh, because they were just as exhausted as the Russians were. And so that's the and Battle think, of Liaoyang. Go ahead. And I think the, the theme of today so far has been not knowing when to quit and not knowing when to go. You know, and it reminds me, um, you know, I was sitting down and watching Animal Planet one day and kind of a weird analogy, but follow me here. Um, a cheetah has this innate ability to know when to chase down that gazelle, when its chances of chasing down that gazelle is higher rather than lower. And um, I think the stat is only one in 19 times does the cheetah actually chase down the gazelle and, and attempt to use all that energy and really, you know, mm -hmm. attack to their full extent. And 
both, you know, in, in the two battles that we've really discussed, both times it was just so close, maybe a miscommunication, maybe a, you know, go instead mm-hmm. of stay or stay instead of go that really could have been huge, huge turning points in the war had Russia mm-hmm. made the right decision there. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's funny to, to play the what if game here, I guess is what I'm saying. No, I, I think so. And, you know, as you were talking, Cameron, it reminded me of, you know, when I've played cards or played poker, right? Mm-hmm. And you're playing against people and you've got to know when to go all in. You got to know when to hold. You got to know when to, you know, I want to start seeing Kenny Rogers, but I, um, I was fully expecting you to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you got to know when to hold them. No when to fold them. All right. Anyway, so no when to walk away. away. No when to run. Is that? Do we got to pay for that now? Because we sang a few bars, or are we okay? I, I think we're, we're anyway. Throw some the BLs threshold. in there, and okay, yeah. <laughs> um, but you you got to have that sense, and I think Russia doesn't have that sense of when to press their advantage. But part of the problem is they don't know they have an advantage to press. So if we're using poker as an analogy here, Japan knows their cards and they know what cards Russia is holding. Russia doesn't even really know what cards they're holding. But see, and, it's and, in this battle that the Russians actually employ for the first time a technology to, to give them an advantage. They start using balloons to monitor the battle. Mm-hmm. Right. So they, they put these hot air balloons up. They put observers up there to look down on the battle. <clears throat> now, that doesn't necessarily give them intelligence for what the Japanese have, but yeah. it gives them a, a, you know, a lay of the land. So they can signal back what is going on. But again, it requires you can you can employ these technologies. But if <clears throat> the generals don't trust it, because there's plenty of times new technology has been employed, whether it's on a battlefield or in a classroom or in a business where the person in charge sees like, yeah, that's a toy. And it doesn't give me what I'm used to getting. So I'm not going to depend on it. So even if you have these balloons monitoring the information coming back, the generals are like, well, they might not know what they're talking about. I do because I've had experience in battles, but not battles like these. It kind of reminds me when we were all teaching at our old school and we all got smart boards, right? And what you said there took me back to that is because depending on the the teacher, (laughs) right? Depending on the teacher, depended on how the smart board was used. My overhead projector works just fine. Exactly, right? And so for a lot of us, a lot of us, the smart board was a glorified projector that we put our PowerPoint on. Um, for others, we used it more interactively. Um, I know Eric, you did and, and, and your wife did a lot. And I was, I tried, but I didn't use it as well as I could have. Um, but then we had others that wouldn't even turn the thing on. And so, but we all had smart boards, right? We all had this new thing that was supposed to make teaching better and used correctly, it would. But if you didn't train with it and you didn't practice using it, it was just as useless as if you didn't have it. And, yeah, and, and it's it's not even when used properly. It's when used properly and aligns with the philosophy of philosophy of what you're exactly. trying to do as teaching. Because the smart board is great. It's a great piece of technology. You can do a ton of things with it <clears throat> that would enrich the classroom. But 
if you're in a classroom where your uh, your overall strategy is decentralization of the learning and students are working on things on their own and the teacher is not the center of the classroom, SmartBoard is almost worthless. Yeah. <clears throat> and so if you have this balloon and the battle does not lend itself to, you know, how you're going to view the battle, uh, it's just a toy. Yeah. And if you're not going to use the information, then it's just a toy and it could become nearly worthless. And and I think that's, and whereas Japan, and it's just so many like, and I, I've been there and I'm sure you guys have, where I've bought some new thing and this new thing is supposed to change my life. It's like, yeah, but I don't know how to use it. I don't know what it's for. And and just because it's built that way, doesn't mean it'll work. And, and in this case, I'm sure somebody got into Tsar Nicholas's ear and he's like, you know, if you start using balloons, you'll be able to scout the Japanese and win the war. And he's like, let's get some balloons. Right. And, and that then, so they got a bunch of balloons. Well, great. What do I do with all these balloons? And if you don't know how to use them, if you aren't trained in using them, it's, it's useless. Whereas Japan is saying, what do the best armies do? What do the best navies do? Oh, they use these technologies and they use these communication devices. Let's get those. Let's train on how to use them. And then let's make that army wide or navy wide. And so they all buy into the system to make it work. And it's just these two contrasts. It's like the Russians like, well, let's buy this new thing. And that should turn the tide for us. And it's like, no, yeah, you, should have been using this, you should have been using this five years ago, you know, but now it's too late. And I don't know. It's just a weird example. That well, but yeah, I mean, it's a, <clears throat> let's use this in the battle. Okay. But do you know how to use it? Because if you just, you know, and again, we can go to the, the, the classroom analogy, because I think that works. You can throw a $10,000 computer into a classroom <clears throat> or you can throw $15,000 worth of whatever into a classroom. But if the teacher and I guess even the school don't know how it's going to be used and don't have a plan for it, it's worthless. <clears throat> so while the, while the Russians seem to be getting more on board with new technologies, their leadership has not bought into it and is not utilizing it to the extent that the Japanese have. And they haven't trained on it. They haven't sold it to everyone. Hey, th this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to use it. And this is how it's going to help us win the war. You got to know those things. Yeah. Um, I don't know what we're talking about anymore. Okay. So the that's the pedal. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> we got into a little teaching, <laughs> teaching moment there. Um, I, another part of Liao Yang, um, you know, they were trying to retreat. Um, in one case on September 1st, they tried to take, uh, take back Karen Hill. Um, however, the Russians communication is so bad that once they took it, they did take it, but they didn't know that they took it. And so then other Russians came up to take it and they all started firing on each other. And then all of them retreated. And so then like, it's just another example of that, that technology or that lack of communication coming back to hurt them um, and, and be counterproductive to their end goal. Um, but, you know, Kuropakin retreated. He claimed victory even though he retreated because he made the Japanese pay for it, but it, it was a Russian loss, the Japanese claimed it also as a victory, um, using it to offset their failed initial attack on Port Arthur. Uh, the next land battle is Shaho, 
on October 5th. Um, another example, uh, this is a Russian counteroffensive by Kuropotkin. Uh, he distrusted his subordinates and distrusting his subordinate generals, Russian slowness and inefficiency, and orders found on the body of a staffer by the Japanese uh, led to a disjointed offensive that failed to capitalize, even though, again, they had superior numbers. Um, they did take One Tree Hill, which I think was like a CW show back in the early 2000s. But yeah, I mean, um, getting that <clears throat> for the Russians was good. They wanted some CW action, I guess. Yeah, so good for them. They got the rights to One Tree Hill. Um, Street Williams, I think, is in that. So that, that's a big get. Uh, Russians recaptured it, but it cost them 10,959 dead and 30,000 wounded, whereas the Japanese lost that hill, but it took 4,000 dead and 16,000 wounded. So the Russians paid a massive price um, to get that hill, and it wasn't a decisive win at all. Um, all it did was force Japan to really focus on finishing the battle at Port Arthur. Um, because the J Japanese knew they couldn't fight the Russians um, if half their force was split. Um, yeah, and, and so Arthur. these Shaho, um, Lao Yang are all happening while the Port Arthur is under siege because Port Arthur has been un <laughs> under siege since August and will be under siege through, or through January of 1905. So these are all battles going on while we have this siege going on. Well, the Battle of the Yellow yeah. Sea, um, it happened earlier. Um, but these are all battles happening kind of north of the uh, Laodong the Peninsula. Laodong Peninsula, yeah. Um, and so that kind of ends the battles uh, in the winter for a bit here. And so both sides kind of settle in uh, using Chinese labor and to build up their defenses and encampments. And something we mentioned last week, Cameron, that you brought up was how the Russians and how the Japanese used, um, used that Chinese labor because they were both invading forces or occupying forces. So I don't know if you wanna bring that up again, but I, yeah, I thought it might be you worth know, touching on. I think there were just so many differences, obviously in, in styles between the two forces and you know, the, the diplomacy game, I think is underrated in war. Um, you know, everybody thinks it's, it's hand-to-hand -hand combat or A versus B or, you know, a, a fight. But oftentimes, and, and Eric alluded to this as well, is how well do you treat your men? How much buy-in do you have from, you know, the, the troops on the ground versus, you know, the, the head guys at, at the the commanders i guess um so yeah just building building relationships and and not getting too satisfied with yourself all of these things are you know pretty simple concepts that uh you know and, and we've talked about jocko now a couple of times in the in the last two or three episodes but um that's why i'm such a fan of, of his books and his uh teachings and everything is yeah it it correlates a lot to war, but these are, are simple things that, you know, building relationships with the people that you're conquering sounds kind of weird to say out loud, but that goes a long way to say, yeah, you know, we're going to be on your side. We're going to um, build a, a long-term relationship here rather than raping and pillaging and burning and forcing our people to do that because 
coercion only works for a short amount of time, right? Um, you yeah. can fear, you, you can use fear for a very short amount of time, but over the long haul, that's going to break down. And, you know, um, as the war goes on, um, Russia's not winning hearts and minds at all. Yeah. And in fact, they're doing the opposite, which was a big part of, of the turning point. Yeah. Fear and, and, uh, what was the other one you use? Fear and coercion. coercion. They're not in John Wooden's pyramid of success. <laughs> so, I don't think so, uh, I mean, I'll go look, but I don't think they're on there. I'm pretty sure they're not. So, yeah. <laughs> um, John Wooden would have ran this whole operation very differently. Oh my gosh. Um, Can you imagine if they put him in charge at the Pentagon? I mean, you had a string of nine successive hey, wars won, right? John Wooden, the wooden way. Let's start putting your socks on correctly, gentlemen. There's That's all right. There's the Monroe <laughs> Doctrine. Train, don't there's, push ups. <laughs> there's the Monroe Doctrine, there's the Marshall Plan, and then there's the Wooden Way. And they're all equally beneficial, I guess. Um, Secretary of Defense right there. <laughs> so so I got a question. <laughs> yes. with, Anyone can with play defense. Where we're at right now. So, you know, speaking of the what if game, um, I, I want your thoughts on it because I, I, I'm, I'm kind of waffling on this question, but here goes. What if the war would have ended at the fall of Port Arthur? What if Japan would have said, okay, we've got our warm water port. We've essentially conquered the Laodong Peninsula. We've got a pretty good stranglehold on the Korean Peninsula. What if we just stop right there and say, this is ours now and not continue to advance further? Well, I don't know if it's an issue of Japan's intent. I think it was a matter of Russia had no interest in stopping at that point. Um, in stopping the war, like they would, they were still down. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, I think had Japan sued for peace after taking Port Arthur, I don't think Russia would have listened to them because Russia hadn't lost bad enough yet. Um, and I think Russia that, currently even, has their armies on their way. Yeah, the, the west Baltic, along the Trans-Siberian yeah. Railway. So, because I think Japan would have loved to stop <laughs> at that point. I, mm. I, I do because. Time is not on Japan's side. They don't have unlimited money. They don't have unlimited resources. Russia, in a sense, does. Um, but Russia has no interest in stopping the war because they can just retake Port Arthur. They have a million men they can throw at the problem. And, and they were willing to do that. And, and Japan did not. Um, so, but that is a good question because I think in but, Japan's mind, that would have been preferable. And maybe I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but wasn't this around the time where the war became less and less popular in Russia? You know, the, the Russian the fall proletariat of, was basically saying, eh, this is no longer a good the idea. Fall of, yeah, the fall of Port Arthur sets off what becomes known as the Bloody Sunday Riots right. um, later on that month. Um, so, yes, back home, things are not going well for the czar, but he's still willing to fight this one out um at least at this point yeah because um, i mean it, this this is a point here where you know you can extrapolate that out further and, and forgive me for for you know going off topic here but what if this stops here what if russia somehow is is convinced to withdraw there 
does the Russian revolution ever, ever happen? You know, if, if this, if they were to pull out, kind of take care of things at home. Yeah. There were other, other issues that, that were brewing for the next 12 years, but um, you know, I think it's, it's an interesting conversation at least. Well, it is. There's a couple dominoes, I guess you're talking about cause and effect. I mean, if the battle of Port Arthur is it, then we don't get the battle of Mukden, which is really the most world war one like battle in this war in which there's dozens of observers watching. So if, if it ends here and the Russians are not dealing with the pain of losing these battles at home, but also you don't end up getting some of the tactics that are going to be used in world war one. And so maybe world war one occurs slightly differently with different information going into it with how to wage it. Um, if that happens, maybe the Russians are more successful in world war one. If they're more successful there under the czar, maybe the revolution doesn't happen in 1917. Maybe it happens later. Maybe it doesn't happen at all. Maybe it happens earlier, but it doesn't happen in the same way. Well, and another point is, if the war ends after the fall of Port Arthur, you still have the Second Pacific Squadron steaming over, yeah, right to Sabat, to, to Vladivostok because, um, so you still have a, a large Russian fleet in the Pacific, which would change things. I mean, it wouldn't be the one that they wanted, but it's the one that they have. Um, but so let's get into that. Let's get into um, Port Arthur falling. Um, by November, the Japanese were able to transport their 11-inch Krupp howitzers um, from Japan to eight miles from the city, along with thousands of 500-pound shells. They were able to use those to destroy fortifications and the Russian ships in harbor. So now they can bombard the harbor and start sinking those battleships that have been stuck in port. Um, this allows Togo to take his navy back to Japan because Togo, his fleet got brutalized in the Battle of the Yellow Sea. It was also stretched when it had to deal with Makarov for that month. His fleet is in serious need of some help. So he's allowed to take his fleet back to Japan for repairs. This is in November. This, this is important to remember, um, um, to repair and refit to await the arrival of the Second Pacific Squadron coming in from St. Petersburg. Uh, Marshal Oyama and Chief of Staff Kodoma um, sent Kodoma to Nogi to help him with the attack on Port Arthur. Um, eventually they took, um, the, the goal was to take 203 meter hill. 203 meter hill was an, a hill that they could use and get a clear view of the battlefield, the entire harbor and accurately hit the bot battleships. But Colonel Trechikov, who was, we talked about last week, um, was that on Monshan Hill? Eric? Yeah. Battle Manchan. Trechikov, he was the one that was able to defend so well in Manchan. Well, he's holding 203 meter hill. Well, and he also it's, abandons Nanshan when he thinks his reserves are going away. Yes. Right. And but this happened the only... before at Yalu River, the Russians had Tiger Hill and abandoned it, leaving it to the, uh, the Japanese to gain that hill, which gave them the perfect vantage point for that battle. Exactly. So here we go again, right? 
Yeah. And so Trechikov, who we've seen was a capable commander at Monshan Hill, is in charge of the defense at 200 meter three hill. The Russians lose this hill, their ships are getting sunk. There's no way that they can stop the Japanese from sinking their ships. Um, between 11, so November 27th, and 12, uh, December 4th, uh, the hill changes hands several times. Russian Trechikov was in charge of the defense and he held it really, really well until December, um, I think, 5th. And then uh, he was wounded severely and he had to be um, taken back to the base. And so he, uh, after he's wounded, the hill falls to the Japanese. Um, then they start putting those 11 inch Krupp howitzers on the hill and they start sinking all the battleships. They sink every single one of them except the Sevastopol, uh, which moved out of range of the guns. Togo now spends three weeks trying to sink the Sevastopol with his ships, um, but he loses two smaller ships and he loses to battle and he loses one to another Russian mine, not the battleships, but like his cruisers and destroyers. Um, eventually, uh, Commander Stessel, uh, holding Port Arthur, uh, sues for peace from Commander Nogi on January 1st, 1905. And, and um, that was, they did this without counsel because they had brought this up in council previously. Mm -hmm. And the Russian commanders had said, no, we're not surrendering. And so finally, these, I think it's three Russian generals, uh, Stossel, Falk, and Smirnov, like, we're, we're going to surrender. Like, this is worthless. Which, yeah. when they surrender, they're given, especially the officers, always given an option, right? You can be a prisoner of yeah. war or go home and just don't serve again, which I think is a wild option, right? Like, what is really to stop them from coming back? They're like, hey, I see you up there. No, you quit earlier. They got to put on a fake mustache. You can't, you can't be here. That's against the yeah. rules. Um, but those three go back to St. Petersburg and are court-martialed mm -hmm. for their surrender. Yeah. Um, so I think that's kind of interesting. That he was sentenced to death and then later pardoned. So, it, I mean, that's hardcore to go back home. And yeah, I but, quit. And, but I remember reading about that. And I think Stessel basically said, it's worth me dying if it saves my men's lives. That's, he's like, I'm not going to kill my men to save my life. And, um, which I thought was a really great, just a little snippet for, you know, a human side of this war. Um, I did I see another uh, element prior to that surrender. The Japanese detonated a mine underneath Fort Chikawan. I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, mm -hmm. 4,000 pound mine. Right. Yeah. So this happens in World War One. They they tunnel underneath a fortification and then they just bring in all these explosives, run a wire and detonate it. And this happened towards the end of World War One as well. The British would dig holes underneath German lines, fill it with TNT and detonate it. And it would just rip a hole in the ground like a quarter mile wide and just yeah. destroy all the fortifications. So the Japanese do that here and take, uh, you know, it helps them to take one of the forests, which leads to the surrender. Yeah. 
And something about that parole, Eric, that you mentioned, um, after the Russians were paroled, it said, uh, I think this was the Russo-Japanese war by Jukes. He said, uh, the paroled officers and soldiers began looting Fort Arthur, like Port Arthur, began looting Port Arthur and pushed themselves to the front of the first trains out of Port Arthur back to St. Petersburg, shoving women and children aside. So it just it's just another example of how this this contrast, this exercise in, in contrast between the Japanese army and Navy and the Russian army and Navy, the Japanese army is very well trained. Um, their treatment and behavior towards the Chinese as an occupying force was very different. Um, they still took what they wanted, but they're very professional about that. They didn't go about being violent or looting or raping or killing. And the Russians, even on their way out, are exhibiting their worst possible behavior. Um, so I don't think there was an issue there with those Russians coming back later in the war, trying to refight. I think they were so happy to get out that they didn't want anything to do with it ever again. Yeah. All right. Um, real quick, there's some cavalry raids during the winter um, on both sides by Kuropotkin and his Cossack I, regiments. Did Did you mention uh, General Nogi after this battle? Even though he gets this victory, offers to offers to commit suicide, ritual suicide yeah. for all the men he lost, and the emperor said, "No, you aren't allowed to do that. If yeah. you want, you got to wait till after I'm dead." Mm-hmm. Which, after the emperor does die, well, and there's a contrast, right? Stessel is willing to die to save his men, and the czar almost kills him, right? They court-martial <laughs> them, whereas Nogi. All these men died. He felt such shame that he said, I should kill myself. And the emperor says, no, you're not. No, you're not going to kill yourself to save your honor because you're still useful and you're still a good soldier. Like, it's just there's another contrast in, in how these two cultures and these two people are dealing with the the horrors of war, so to speak. And, and it's not, you know, it's a it's a new war. It's a new kind of war. And so this idea that honor is still <clears throat> part of it for Nogi, at least, is mm-hmm. going to be interesting because we're going to see that kind of carry through. Yeah. But he eventually does commit ritual suicide after the emperor dies, like a day or two after that. He's just like, well. After the emperor can't tell him no anymore. Yeah, basically. he's like, well, can't tell me no now. And he does it. Yeah. Um, so there are some cavalry raids. Uh, the Russians had their famed Cossack regiments um, trying to go behind Japanese lines to destroy bridges, rail, communications, depots. Uh, Japanese also sent um, uh, cavalry raids into behind Russian lines, but they're essentially useless. I mean, they did, both sides did minimal damage um, using their cavalry. And the only reason I bring this up is this is another point where how we use war or how we wage war is being changed very, very rapidly. Because even 100 years, even 50 years ago, if you want to talk about the Franco-Prussian War, or Civil War, having a large cavalry was still very, very important into how you waged war because they were your strike force. And now with the weapons that we have with machine guns and big cannons, that's just not effective anymore. Even not machine guns, but uh Armies now have breech loading guns instead of, you know, muzzle loaders. And, and so everything about how we're waging war, the technology is outstripping the need for a large horsed cavalry. 
And it's very um, evident in this war how kind of useless cavalry is becoming and how quickly it, it's it's becoming that way. And I, I was shocked by the number of deaths and casualties throughout this. And I imagine that's as a result of the long range artillery, right? I mean, this is the first time that it's really being used. And I mean, it, 50,000 people died in a battle pretty routinely in this war, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, well, these, these mucked in for sure. And I think some of these later battles, yeah, the numbers are really high. Well, yeah, the first attack on, on Port Arthur, I mean, 16,000 Japanese casualties, boom, in, in a matter of days. Like, yeah. the, they, the casualties in part have to do with the size of the force too, right? I mean, mm-hmm. we go from battles, especially the early ones where there's only a few thousand men, you know, Yalu River, um, Nanshan are not massive battles, not like Mukden. Um, but you compare it to, you know, like civil war battles, which, you know, prior to this war, that's the closest kind of modern war that's happened. Um, even I forget what the casualties at Gettysburg are. Well, the size of the armies at Gettysburg weren't nearly the size of the armies at Mukden, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, as <clears throat> part of the thing is our army sizes have been scaling up over the past several hundred years. The number of men you bring to the fight has increased. The killing power of the machinery and weapons you're using has increased. And then when you concentrate that all together, you end up with much higher casualties. Um, yeah. It's 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 the nature of the technology, but also the ability to bring, hey, we're bringing 250,000 men to this battle. There's going to be a lot of casualties because you're not going up against 10,000 or 40,000. You're going up against 200,000. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. This blows my mind. I mean, you know, you see a full football, college football stadium, and that's a hundred thousand people, and we're talking about twice as many per side, you know, participating in a war. I, I think I read that that one of them, and I'm getting ahead of myself, that there were a half a million soldiers engaged in that in Mukden. I think. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Is, well, let's get into that because I think that's number. the next. Yeah, that's the next one. There, there's two more battles I want to talk about with Sandapu and Mukden. Sandapu is, a, is another uh, Russian uh, offensive. Um, they attacked the Japanese at Sandapu on January 25th, and they took the town of Haikotai, uh, but with massive losses. And so uh, even when the Russians win, they lose. It's it's not a matter of there's no clean victories for the Russians right now. It's just how how much can they make the Japanese pay in 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 turn? And then there's Mukden, um, which is what we've been alluding to for the past few minutes. So the Japanese launched an attack on the Russian stronghold of Mukden on February 20th. Oyama and Kodama uh, took all their forces because now they don't have to split their forces between the north in Manchuria and Port Arthur. So now they have a combined army um, now that Port Arthur has fallen. Kuropotkin had 275,000 men at this battle. At the time, the largest single force ever under one commander. And Japan had 200,000. So yeah, you're right, five 
just about 500,000 people at this one battle. Um, well, and I've got some and, higher numbers than that, but okay. 340,000 for the Russians, 270 for the, the Japanese. Okay, well, maybe there was others. Maybe that was just Kuropatkin's force yeah. and there was another. Um, so, but okay, so you have over 500,000, almost 600,000, right? Yeah. Seven, okay. Um, the way I saw the battle play out was Kuropatkin, he's got the numbers, he's got the guns. He sends all of his reserves to his eastern wing. Oyama crosses the Hun River on February 27th and begins bombarding the Russians with those big howitzers again. Kuropatkin, <laughs> so Nogi, so Kuropatkin sends all of his reserves to his Eastern wing. So the Japanese under Nogi attack his Western flank and Kuropatkin can't move his reserves now to the West because they're all in the East. And so it's another instance of Japanese logistics and planning is, is going better than the Russians. Um, by March 7th, the railway north of Mukden is cut. So the Russians are now cut off from any reserves, prompting Kuropatkin to send telegram to St. Petersburg. I am surrounded. Uh, he orders a general retreat to Tayling, which is 40 miles north of Mukden. Mukden. Um, and Japanese lost about 15,000 dead. Russians had 40,000 dead. Japanese had 60,000 wounded, Russians had 49,000 wounded. Maybe you have some different numbers, but um, massive Russian loss here. Not only did they lose Mukden, they lost almost 100,000 men uh, in a matter of a couple of weeks here. And then they had to retreat 40 miles north of where they were. Yeah, and uh, it's believed this was probably the largest battle in history up until this point, mm -hmm. which, you know, again, when we talk about this particular thing, uh, I think it's given a paragraph in most history books in terms of, you know, normal, you know, academic histories in the classroom, but to in 1905 have the largest battle in human history being fought in Manchuria just is given no attention. Um, over 20 million rifle rounds were fired by the Japanese and almost 300,000 artillery shells in that, what was it 10 days of fighting? Mm -hmm. And that, that eclipses the Franco-Prussian War, um, which lasted 191 days. Jeez. And to think that this is going to be eclipsed when you get to like the Battle of Verdun or the Battle of the Somme, where you know, in the course of a week, they're going to unload a million artillery shells in one, you know, five mile stretch. Mm -hmm. uh, so <clears throat> a lot of firepower. And that was just the Japanese numbers, right? So, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's an amazing statistic when you look at the, the just sheer volume of everything here. Because what have we talked about other big battles like for example, the the Battle of Thermopylae, right? Mm -hmm. and, and the Battle of um, Plataea, where you had three, you know, 300,000 Persians, right? Against possibly 30,000 Greeks, although both those numbers probably were inflated. That was a big battle, but they didn't have machine guns 
at the Battle of Thermopylae and Plataea. They had, would have helped. Would have helped. <laughs> I mean, the Spartans probably would have held at Thermopylae with with howitzers and machine guns. <laughs> but you know, it, it's a matter of that. That's another part of the scale. Like you said, it's not only that the numbers are bigger, but the the killing power of each man on the field is so much more than had ever been seen in history. Even the Franco-Prussian War, which is the last big war before this one, um, the 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 technology leap from the 1870s to 1904 and five is just enormous. And I think that's something that we don't often understand. We, and we always look at world war one. It's like, well, this is, that's the first truly modern war. It's like, no, this one was, we just don't talk about this one. Yeah. And maybe if we did, we would understand world war one better. Yeah. And, you know, to use another sports reference and analogy again, you know, it used to be, defense wins championships but you know in in basketball specifically great offense beats great great defense right mm-hmm. so you know and and throughout history you can see this where you know they the defense became more important and then the offense came more important you know we're, we're not that far removed from you know world war ii which is going to be air forces and bombing and all of you know this really mm-hmm high level stuff. Whereas, you know, prior to that, it was line up in rows and take, take turns shooting at each other with, uh, you know, muzzle loaders. Yeah. So it, it's, it's just fascinating to see how history just is cyclical in, in all of these things is what are we trying to do? And we talked about this with, with, uh, um, Japan in the first episode of, of this series is, you know, they're trying to look at best practices and what's everybody else doing? How can we make that better? And at this point, it just seems like the the technology outweighed or the, the technology, I guess, outgrew the tactics, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah that's kind of a big lesson of World War One, right? <clears throat> they had tactics. So we have this war in 1904 and 1905, and there's observers from every country in Europe watching this war and seeing how it's being fought mm-hmm. with the technology that's going to be used 10 years later. And they don't get the lesson that if you dig in and put enough machine guns out there, you don't have to do anything else. They, ne- they don't learn that lesson. They don't even barely learn that lesson during the four years of World War I. They try to march out there in rows it works for about six weeks and then everyone digs in and still the attempt is everyone get up out of your trench, march across this strip of land and we'll just take the other trench. Oh, well they have machine guns. Well, yeah, we got machine guns too. Yeah, but we're not in our holes anymore. So the lessons aren't learned here. They're not learned through three years of world war one even going into the last year, I think the Germans were the only ones that really said, we are going to come up with a new tactic here at the end and use these shock troopers. We'll take a group of like a squad of eight, load them with hand grenades and our best automated, like handheld weapons. And they'll just go under cover of night and wreak havoc, mm-hmm. you know, and towards the end, they had finally figured it out. Um, yeah. We could take that to today. What tactics have we learned uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan, they're going to help us in the next war. Have we actually learned any lessons? 
we, we can see how things are being fought. Is that how the next war is going to be fought? Well, it's funny because you say this, it, it, Vietnam is such an instructive war for America is because that was a war that we weren't used to fighting because it mm -hmm. wasn't like the traditional continental wars of Europe. And so we had to learn how to fight guerrilla warfare and all that stuff or combat against guerrilla warfare. And they learned all those lessons in Vietnam and then they forgot them by the time Afghanistan and Iraq came, yeah. which were very similar in how the wars were, were waged. Yeah. Um, and so they had to relearn all the lessons that they learned in the 60s and 70s. So that's a very good point that you make there. Um, so I, I, I want to wrap this up. And I think what, what's going to happen is, is like we, we discussed prior to this episode is we're probably going to have to split this into two um, because we've got all of the formation of the 2nd Pacific Squadron, the Battle of Tsushima left, and the war's conclusion after that. And that's a whole other hour-long episode um but so going to game four baby game four yeah somehow even um, though the japanese continue to win it's amazing <laughs> the russians have lost they just don't know it yet and it's yeah it's unbelievable um but yeah i, I think i mean we've, we've kind of hit a lot of these lessons that that we want to talk about with how this war is being waged and how that impacts world war one and eventually world war two um I don't know if you have any other thoughts, Cameron. You want to go over before? No, we sign I, I need to leave leave a couple bullets in the gun for for next time because <laughs> it's, it's just a fascinating conversation, and you know we'll we'll get into um, you know the the effects of the war next, which I think are are even more interesting than than our subject tonight. But uh, yeah, I. Really, really fascinating stuff today. I'm glad that that we've uh, covered it so far. Yeah, yeah, it's been awesome. How about you, Eric? Uh, I mean, it's very curious to me how this feeds into the history of the 20th century and uh, and how impactful it was. And yet, again, I, I'm still kind of baffled that I wasn't very aware of this um, because it it, it is strikingly uh telling as to i mean we see this unfolding here and it, it informs how things are going to happen over the next 20 30 years and nobody is willing to listen yeah it's, it's a teacher in you right there eric just yeah. just listen you know just, we can do this easy way we can do this hard way just just listen to your teacher kids. humans do it the hard way yeah. i you know i had yeah. that conversation with my students uh, this past week, um, they were talking about like the Israelites and this is, this is way off topic, but, um, and I'm trying to remember, you know, the names it was, you know, the Northern kingdom of Israel. Right. And, uh, Elijah goes up to the prophets of Baal and he's like, Hey, uh, let's do this challenge. Right. Yeah, what's it going to be? Uh, you bring your <laughs> 950 prophets of Baal and Asherah, and we're going to do this thing. We're just going to see who wins. And he sees all the people who've been, you know, misled. And I asked my students, I said, why does this keep happening? Like, why do these, these Israelites who've been told these promises over and over, why do they keep every single time we read that falling away they're doing all this bad stuff again why does this keep happening and they don't really have an answer and i said don't they don't they know 
how they got here? Don't they understand their history? Like this is told to them constantly. And they're like, yeah, well, yeah. Someone probably tells them. I said, are you surprised that they aren't like, yeah, we know who brought us to the promised land and we're going to be faithful to God and all that. And they kind of got that quizzical look in their face. And I said, what's happening here? And they're kind of like, well, they're not, they're not paying attention to their history. They're not paying attention to what's going on around them. I said, you know what they're not doing? They're not listening to their parents. Their parents have taught them like every generation parents are like do it this way. Just follow this. Cause I have experience. And the generation says, nah, we're good. We want to try it our way. Mm-hmm. And of course we spend our teenage years falling all over ourselves, hitting ourselves in the face against brick walls and whatnot, <laughs> getting picked but- up by police, throwing rocks at cars and wonder but, like, uh- what, why, why, why do bad things always happen to me? And as my dad says, cause you're a dumbass. That's why. And so it's like, listen to your parents. Like we have the lessons, pay attention. Nah, I'm good. Just going to do it my way. See how it turns out. And what happens? Elijah's altar goes up in flame. There just doesn't, they take him down to the river and slaughter them. And that is, I, I, it's one of my, favorite stories from the Bible. It's first uh, Kings 17, I think. Yeah. 18. But um, yeah. And, and the irony of ironies is here we are thinking that, you know, we're different and we're making fun of these, uh, these generals of the past. Like, why didn't you just do this? Or why didn't you do just do that? And, you know, the same is true. when we look back in Bible history and gosh, those, those hard-headed Israelites never learn. And, They're you know, so we look back at our teenage selves and, we never learn. And yet here we are as, as uh, you know, grown men, not always doing the right thing or not always being as devoted as, as we should. Although, and here's funny. something I want to bring up. There's an interesting contrast, though, is that part of why the Russians are doing so poorly is because they're stuck in the past. Well, this is the way it's we've true. always done it. And the Ooh. Japanese and the <laughs> Japanese are like. The way we were doing it doesn't work anymore. We need to change. That doesn't mean abandon our identity. That does not mean abandon yeah. our culture. They didn't. And that's a credit to them that they didn't westernize. You know, they, they industrialized, they modernized, but they still were very, I, they still had that Japanese identity. The Russians, on the other hand, were stuck. They were stuck in this autocratic old way of doing things. And then when the modern world came up to them, they just weren't ready to catch up with it. And, and, so it's interesting, right? Because you're right, Eric. We do need to remember our history and largely listen to our parents. But <laughs> but in some cases, your parents are going to be wrong in 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 a sense. You know, there's going to be times where the, where your elders are telling you something no. that's just wrong, and you yeah. need to you can't just go, well, why do we do this? And someone says, well, we've always done it that way. That's not a reason. Yeah. No, I, why I, do we do this? Well, <laughs> we do this because in the past, this, this, and this happened. Okay, well, that's different. So it's just an interesting dynamic that you, I don't know if you intentionally or unintentionally. No, it was up. totally unintentional. But yeah, I've heard that argument. a lot of ground in this episode. Why do we, we not? Uh, why <laughs> do we lessons. <laughs> why do we do it that way? Well, because we've always done it that way. That absolutely drives me up the wall. Yeah. At the same time, when somebody says, why do we do it that way? And you're like, well, here's exactly why we do it. And I can explain it to you. I'm going to explain it to you. And you're going to hear me. But you're not going to listen. 
And so you're going to have mm-hmm. to figure out for yourself why we do it this way. Right. And so I, 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 I agree with both points. Like they're both true. Yeah, they are. There's they no are. seeming contradictions, but they're both true. It's yeah. Just, and, and I think I was leading to, you know, we, we had this war in 1914 to 1918 and everyone could have looked back at the Russo Japanese war and said, we, we can see how this is going to turn out. We're going to bring, we're both going to bring a million men to this town in France on either side. And we're going to lob shells at each other for two weeks. And then we're going to charge across barbed wire and minefields and expect a victory. We have the, we have the, we have the trial run here, and this is what it ends up looking like. You're going to end up with 150,000 people dead after 10 days of fighting. So, and nobody really gains ground. So, we can do it the way we've always done it, but that's how this ends up. Or we can change. We can learn the lesson and make the change. Yeah, that's a great. That's a good those way two things it. tied together. Symbiosis. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Anyway, that's, I think it's a great place to end. So thank you all for joining us tonight. Uh, Make sure you guys like, subscribe, follow, hit that notification bell. Um, Ding. All right. And uh, if you want more of me singing Kenny Rogers, uh, subscribe to our Patreon and uh, (laughs) go behind the paywall. (laughs) All right. um, I'm Jake. We got Cameron and Eric and uh, we'll see y'all next time. Bye. Bye, everybody.